Welcome to the Curious Climber podcast. In this episode, I'm talking to Madeline Crane, who's a sports psychologist based near Magic Wood in Switzerland. I first met Madeline at Tivoli Climbing Wall in Innsbruck, actually. We were both there having a session a few days before the Innsbruck World Cup, I think in 2013. We got on really, really well. We climbed together a bunch. I thought Madeline was great. I didn't realize at the time that she was a sports psychologist. I've since bumped into her in lots of different climbing areas. Madeline's a really strong climber herself. So she really understands on a personal level how much the mind and your psychology can impact your performance. So Madeline works, as I said, as a sports psychologist and systemic coach. She works as much as she can with climbers because obviously she has a deep interest in climbing herself. And she helps people building confidence, understanding their process, and basically getting their head in gear so that they can climb to the best of their ability. And I think we all understand as climbers how much your head game can affect your performance. I certainly do over the years, trying various routes, boulder problems. You know, you can be physically 100% strong enough to do whatever it is you're trying, but very often your head can get in the way, especially I find when you're starting to really think you can do something. So it's really interesting to talk to someone who's actually studied this in an academic way and understands the known pathways and important kind of tools that we can use to maximize our performance and also to enjoy the process as much as possible. And I think the two are really interlinked. Anyway, so in this podcast, we talk about her background, how she got into sports psychology. We talk about developing confidence in performance, comparison in sport, body image, vulnerability, what a coach can do to help the athletes that they work with, and also emotional regulation. So being able to, to a certain extent, control your emotions around your performance. It was a really interesting conversation. It was actually the first podcast I recorded for The Curious Climber, so bear with me on this one if it's a little bit rustier than some of the others. Okay, hi, Madalena. Hey, Mina. Thank you for having me today. You're totally welcome. So just want you to start by telling me a little bit about your background, so how you got into... So your personal climbing background but also your sports psychology background and how you kind of came to doing that for, for work? Well, um, so I basically started climbing when I was eight years old and I actually fell in love with it at first sight or at first try probably. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, at that age, you try a lot of different sports and so I was skiing, I was doing acrobatics, but nothing ever fascinated me as much as climbing did. And the nice thing is that it's actually still the same. Oh, that's and nice. So it's really the same still today. And I'm really passionate about it still today. And relatively soon after I started, I um, competed in some kids' competitions and youth competitions. And... I surprisingly did really well in them. So mm-hmm. I actually just kept doing them. And um, I think I never really questioned much about it when I was that age, but I loved it. Climbing then gave me the opportunity to travel around Europe and across the world um, for youth competitions. Mm-hmm. And yes, and at some point, I think it was like 16 or 17, I uh, 
felt like something was holding me back. Like I felt like I couldn't really perform as I wanted to anymore. I've always ever been incredibly nervous. And um, it's really funny that I think I was 17, 16, maybe even 18 when I first saw a sports psychologist. Oh, right. And so you kind of had this personal experience with it quite early. I, I had a personal experience. I thought at that point it was rather late because I thought, oh, I could have benefited um, of it quite um, way earlier already. Okay. And But the interesting thing was, so you know how you go and see the sports psychologist and then you come home and the parents might ask you, like, how has it been and what did you do? And I could never really say what we were doing. I was just like, oh, we talked a lot. And I just felt so much better afterwards. Okay. And um, so this was my very first experience working with a um, psychologist, or in that case, a sports psychologist. And I find it really fascinating. And when I was uh, when I left school and I wanted to go to university, um, I didn't really know what to study at first because there were so many different things that would have interested me like I don't know art or medicine and but I always ever came back to psychology because psychology is incredibly um, creative and you work with humans and it's really interesting and it's also really good subject for if you don't know exactly which field you're going to work in so you can mm -hmm. work in sports you can work in the clinical field you can work in business you can work in art so it's um i don't know the name for it in english but it's like um a sub uh, a, it is uh it is a field where you can work in different areas and mm. so that's what i really loved about it and I started in Innsbruck then. And of course, in Innsbruck, you go climbing more than ever. And everyone is really psyched and you train a lot. And um, I was also psyched and I felt like stronger than I had been before. Mm. And um, yeah, and I guess that's where it all also started off, like my passion for climbing and then also developing the passion for psychology. And this was the start for my work what I do today where I mainly focus working with climbers okay yeah so just going back to when you first started studying it did you have like I'm just thinking because you obviously had quite a profound experience with it having seen a psychologist and then when you started studying and you were still climbing a bunch did you find that you were having these like really kind of personal learning curves alongside the kind of um the kind of studying learning curves this is a really interesting question. Um, I do believe so, um, particularly um, in applied subjects. And I also did like a further educational course um, to become um, a professional psychologist later on. And yeah. applying these strategies and tools for yourself and asking yourself, how would you like to do this? How does this tool fit for yourself? Um, has actually um, helped me and my climbing a lot. And my, actually, I think my general approach in life for doing mm. things. 
Okay. Oh, that's interesting. And so you're saying you work a lot with climbers at the moment. Do you, have you worked in other sports as well or have you been really focused on climbing? Um, so I have a cooperation with the Olympia Centrum in the region where I live in. Uh-huh. So I do work with other athletes as well or with other sports like um, fencing or karate or cycling. So it's really interesting to get an insight into other sports as well because there are some things that you sometimes can transfer or some topics that come up um, again and again in different sports. So it's a really interesting process of um, yeah, getting the wide range of different sports. Yeah, definitely. Do you find that you get similar themes across all the sports? Like, is it, or do you find that some things are quite specific? Like, do you see certain trends with climbers that, for example, you don't see in other sports or vice versa? Um, I can definitely see parallels. Um, For example, um, the topic of confidence is for sure something that comes up um, in different um, areas, like, confidence in general or confidence in performing on day x um, in a competition um, believing in yourself and trusting your abilities i have made the experience that this is also um, particularly a topic for younger athletes okay um, when they are in their teens another topic which i've find really interesting which appears again and again is um comparison comparing yourself with others and I think that's the nature of competition sports where that you naturally compare yourself to others because at the end of the day that's what results do Um, yeah of course especially in the competition kind of um area it's very kind of direct you know who is who is better kind of situation isn't it, it? it exactly it's like unlike the rest of the world it's pretty black and white you either win or you don't yeah as you mm. say um yeah so and the interesting thing is that um yes so results and competitions are made to compare ourselves but um in the moment when we're competing thoughts like this and comparing ourselves with others um, can actually be really stressful and can actually impact our performance negatively. Mm. Okay, so so what kind of things would you do with someone? So say they're struggling with, because um, I'm sure it's like you say, really prevalent and probably outside of comps as well with like outdoor climbers and you know, everyone comparing um, comparing to someone someone near them or someone similar to them. How How would you kind of help with that? Oh, that's always a hard question to generically answer it. <laughs> yeah, of course. I'm sure it's quite individual. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so first of all, um, I would like to find out um, in which particular situations um, an athlete is comparing him or herself with others. So it's tr- maybe trying to like manage kind of context specific stuff. Is that what you mean? Yes, exactly. So because you were talking about different examples, like um, comparisons happen when we're outdoor climbing, they happen when we're in competitions, and or they even happen when we go to the boulder gym in the evening, we probably don't feel as fit, and then some other climbers that normally might be weaker than us, and they just seem to climb much stronger than us um, today. So these comparisons happen all of the time and 
the thing is we can't really influence what others do and um, we don't have this under control but focusing on something that is out of our control that is out of our influence is incredibly stressful and this actually is true for all areas of, of our lives mm. so um if we don't know what's going to happen if we are in a really uncertain situation this causes stress so yeah. in order to better deal with that um it can help to um, look at things that are in your control and um this can be like asking the athlete okay think about when do you climb at your best in competitions and then maybe the answer is oh when i just have fun if i don't have any expectations if i don't have any pressure and then you try to elaborate what factors are actually helpful and instead of saying like i'm not under pressure i would ask so what do you focus on or what are you instead and um the athlete might say um, well, I'm just really happy and climbing. I'm just really enjoying the process. Um, or like, oh, I'm really happy to be in this international competition for the first time and that it's a privilege to be there. So the focus shifts from comparing yourself with others or maybe even thinking about results and how far the others got to um, rather focus on something that you like about the whole process and thinking about the reason why you are here mm. and yeah like the latter um might also be true for outdoor climbing so i've recently made a personal experience where um at some point i started comparing myself to others because i have this long-term bouldering project and um, for me personally, it's really hard. Mm -hmm. And um, I've worked on it several um, for, I think, like two years now. And I've been injured in between on several body parts, probably because of this bowler, because it's quite physical for me. Yeah. And um, then there would athletes come in and they would just do it within a session. And then in this moment, you're like, oh, this is kind of frustrating because they just come in and do it and I have to work on it so hard. So in this moment, I caught myself like comparing, like why can't I climb this as quickly as the others do? Yeah. And I felt a little bit upset that they climbed it, but then I realized as well, okay, it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, I'm not them. I can't speak for them. I'm myself and I take as long as I need to climb this boulder. It's not about anyone else. And I was thinking about how will I feel if I've completed this boulder? Well, I don't even care about anyone else. And I wouldn't even worry how fast um, the others would have climbed that boulder problem. But I would just be really pleased with myself. Yeah. And I think comparisons happen naturally uh, many times. But um, the key is to realize and be mindful in such moments and then realize, okay, or catching yourself having such thoughts and then just like reshifting your focus okay why am i doing this um why am i having fun or um what's exactly making me do this um this boulder problem or why do i compete in this competition 
and what's good about it how will I feel if I've completed it Mm. and I think this also takes a lot of pressure away Sure. And you're kind of really focusing on shifting to like intrinsic motivation and kind of um, personal kind of learning and process focused stuff rather than outcomes and achieving certain goals. And and I always kind of think that, you know, like comparison, like you said, it's natural and we all do it. And I don't think anyone should feel like they've failed for, um, you know, falling into that trap because we we all do it. But I think, um, like you say, it's, it's that kind of shift to thinking about you know where is this on a personal level and what what am I trying to learn and what is this process of trying something at my limit going to kind of bring me in terms of learning and development in the long run um and also noticing how much um a few people have written recently about social affirmation and I think how important um how that can kind of creep into being too important I think comparison somehow fits in with that same conversation of wanting to you know fitting into a community and where you see yourself in that community and what other people might think of you and and comparing to others is all kind of it's all external stuff isn't it which if that becomes too highly weighted in our minds can can kind of I don't know I feel like that can lead to kind of I guess more negative experiences I totally agree with you and but as you say at the end of the day it's not about all the others and it's not about everyone else it's about what do we want and what are our needs in this situation to be achieving what we want yeah yeah and I guess what I would imagine some people would say is well yeah that makes absolute sense you know theoretically but how do we bring that into practice do you have any like are there any like tools for bringing yourself back into the present moment or like you said catching yourself thinking those things and then bringing yourself back to those kind of personal cues and motivations? Again, really interesting question because I think there are tools and it starts with, um, as I've said before, being mindful Mm. and training your mindfulness in um, even everyday life situations can be really helpful because if... um, you're mindful towards your own thoughts and emotions and how you feel, you can catch yourself quickly in such situations. And it's nothing wrong about, as we've also said before, there's nothing wrong about about comparing yourself or thinking about what to do other things. And we all have that. And we also live in a society where this is probably fostered that mm. we constantly compare ourselves, which is probably not helpful. Um, and just the whole yeah. school system that we're brought up with, you know, exam results and grades, you know, they're all relative um, uh, results, well, aren't they? <laughs> you're so right. I 100% agree with you. Actually, we learn this comparison from such a young young age onwards. So it's absolutely clear that we keep comparing ourselves later on, like, and that we uh, also, like, think about... Um, how do others judge us? Because at the end of the day, talking about the school system, for example, or even with competitions, you get more um, um, social confirmation and um, support, maybe even if you're successful. Mm. If you like, if you, the society thinks you're successful, but at the end of the day, um, um, it's really hard if we only focus like okay what does the society want from us um 
how can we fit in this system but or how can we um um like be good in comparison to others because the only thing once again is like we can only be our our personal best and we can only be um like ourselves we can't be someone else you know what i mean Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're, you're yeah. making yeah a lot of sense. I, I, it sounds like a lot of the work you do at, is, as well as creating new good habits and tools and kind of, um, you know, cre- creating new thought patterns and, and um, things like that. It's also unpicking a lot. It's unpicking and um, dissecting established habits that aren't serving that person and cultural influences that aren't serving that person. Yeah. So um, what is really interesting, what, for example, you have been talking about tools. Um, Another thing is like what beliefs have I been passed on by um, family, friends, like general beliefs and how can we reformulate them into something that is actually helpful? So. Um, I, I can't think of an example right now. I'll give you an example later on. Sure. Like, but it be like general beliefs, like, oh, I can, I will never be able to achieve this because I've always been ta- uh, told that I'm not good enough. And sure. beliefs like this are often like implicitly passed on. And that's what I've been, uh, that's as well what I've been saying with being mindful. Like, First of all, you have to recognize such beliefs, become aware of what are these underlying beliefs and thoughts um, and what of this is helpful and how can you reformulate them into something helpful um, and supportive. Like talking about tools, um, I think one really simple tool is just asking yourself um, questions, like self-reflection questions. Um, every now and then just like okay why am I doing this or um, what do I particularly enjoy about okay let's go back to climbing Um, what do I particularly enjoy about it Um, what can I learn from this process whatever process um, you're in like I'm trying to formulate it generally now so you can apply it probably to outdoor climbing or competitions Mm. but also if we feel like we're in a crisis or something doesn't work the way we want it to, that might be that we don't send our project or that we're ill or injured or, I don't know, or that the competition doesn't go the way we had planned to. Mm. So really helpful thing is like every crisis has its, its own opportunities and we might not be able to see these opportunities um, in this moment but um making a change of perspective for example like just imagine you look at this situation 40 years later and you're like i don't know a mom or a grandmom at that point and you're telling your kids or grandchildren about this situation back then and then you tell them what did you learn from that particular situation from not doing well in the competition or for having injured yourself and you tell them okay actually in hindsight this situation actually had its positive sides as well because 
da, 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 I don't know, like, yeah, would be probably several like positive examples, but such a change of perspective, like right now, like, okay, what will I think in the future about the situation right now? Yeah. It's a tool at the end of the day. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm kind of shifting that to like a learning focused mindset. So Hazel, a friend Hazel, she does a lot of like mental coaching as well. And she often talks about being really learning focused. So with, with any kind of um, goal, rather than trying to just like attain the outcome, it's always about, okay, what can this route teach me? Or what can this you know project teach me? Um, and what can I learn? And so long as you're progressing and learning, even if you never get to the top, that almost doesn't matter if the if your motivation lies with the learning and it's quite a it's a kind of quite fundamental shift in perspective but I think it's a really interesting one and I think if we can do it at least some of the time it's really helpful because suddenly you're in, in kind of engrossed in this process and this kind of developmental learning kind of um pathway and along the way you get to the top of things for sure or you gain skills that help you in other areas of your life but I've always thought, like, I remember when she, I first spoke to her about it and she was saying, you know, this, this is a really interesting kind of paradigm shift. I was like, wow, yeah, you know, it really is. Um, I, so I personally found that quite a powerful um, uh, way to think about it. And it sounds like you, you do a really similar kind of approach. I totally agree. I love the approach. And um, I've been following Hazel's latest post where she was talking exact about this exact process and focusing on this process and it's actually really enjoyable and once you've managed or learned to shift your focus um on this process it can be really joyful so like i totally love this approach i think it's really helpful and mm -hmm. as you said for several areas of our lives yeah yeah and quite liberating for climbing as well because it can be this kind of um conveyor belt can't it of like trying to you know, you, you send one project and already you have the next one, or, you know, if you're a competition climber, there's just, you know, there's endless competitions and, you know, it helps you to kind of almost step off the conveyor belt for a minute and be like, okay, what do I actually want to get better at? What do I want to learn? And what, what is this challenge going to help me with developing? Um, and yeah, I found it certainly quite liberating to kind of sh try and shift more into that mindset. I, I totally agree. You know, what is funny? Um, Mm -hmm. So I don't know, I find like one of the most common um, Instagram um, phrases after maybe a competition hasn't gone so well, or I don't know, if someone hasn't um, sent a project. I very often read things like, oh, it hasn't gone as well, but doesn't matter. I've gained a lot of experiences. Mm -hmm. And I think to a certain point, this has become a phrase, but we're... I think it can make a difference when it's not only a phrase, but when you actually sit down and maybe even write down, take notes, what exactly did you learn and what exact parts can you do differently? Because not everything we can do differently. Some things, um, why we haven't done something or achieved something was out of our control. It was, I don't know, because of weather conditions and the thing is like realizing, okay, I can't force a result. There, like a result is always um, depending on various um, variables. Like realizing, okay, what is there exactly to learn? What is there exactly to do differently? What exactly 
have I found really enjoyable about this process? And mm. all of a sudden, like just asking yourself these questions shifts your focus away from only the result, but like again to the process. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes the learning is I couldn't have done anything better. I came with my best self that day to that competition or to that route or Boulder problem project or whatever it is. I brought my absolute best self. The weather was good. The conditions were good. And, you know, I just, I couldn't climb it or I couldn't get the result I wanted. And, and sometimes the learning is that you're disappointed, but that's okay. Um, and that, you know, the world didn't end basically. <laughs> oh, hundred percent agree. And I think this is a really, it's actually a life lesson you learn there because if you learn, like it's okay to, that sometimes it doesn't go the way you want it to, but, uh, don't you say like life isn't like a cherry picking or something like that there's a quote like that but there will mm. be times in any areas of our life where we won't achieve the wished outcome even though the conditions were perfect in that moment and it's such an important life lesson and it's okay to be upset afterwards and it's okay to be frustrated or sad or um unhappy or whatever um it's just always the question of how long am I feeling with these unpleasant emotions and how quickly can I actually say like, okay, that's okay. Then I'm upset, but now I move on. Well, sometimes it just happens. Sometimes it just doesn't go the way you want it to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wanted to move on actually to ask you a little bit recently on um, your kind of social media platforms. You've been talking quite a lot about body image and it seems as an outsider looking in that you've had quite a lot of, kind of interaction with those posts like it's been quite a topic that um people have been wanting to talk more about wanting to hear more about so I, I kind of wanted to move on to to that aspect of of sports psychology body image first of all do you see that as more prevalent in climbing than other sports you've worked with or is it just an across the board something that athletes struggle with this is a really interesting question because I'm obviously deeper involved in climbing. So when I've been doing my research about this whole topic, there haven't hasn't been any research on climbing in particular, but there was a lot of research in other sports. What does that kind of tell you? And, and is a lot of that useful then to take into a, a climbing context? Yeah, it's really interesting. So the, so maybe uh, I don't know whether everyone knows what the body image is but it's like defined it's like an internal representation of our appearance and um I think we have to look at this from two different perspectives because at the one side we have to look at it from like if you're a climber and you compare yourself um with a non-climber so if we as a climbers, we're very defined, um, we have like rather big biceps and big shoulders, and it's probably not exactly what we interpret as, I don't know, beautiful or at, as how we're supposed to look like, particularly females in a normal context, in a non-climber context. I think we have to make the differentiation like climbing versus non-climbers. So body images um, changes with the altering situations and whatever context we're in. And it's also like 
influenced by cultural norms um, or what is um, told by the media, what is good and what is not good. Yeah. I think and, the gender difference that you mentioned is quite interesting because I've I've thought a bit about this and I, th- I think, um, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but like with men, the kind of wider cultural idea of beauty or attractiveness, handsomeness or whatever lines up quite closely with the kind of sporting athletic image that men might strive for. Whereas with women, they're slightly different images. So what you might, and again, this is very general, but I would say historically as a whole, the cultural idea of beauty for a woman isn't necessarily the same as what you might be considered an athletic figure for a woman. So sometimes as athletic women, there might be a bit of conflict in terms of what we think of as our body image and um, where we feel that sits. You know, you might be, for example, I know some climbing girls who really don't like how muscly they are because they don't feel like it's attractive and that's an insecurity that they hold. On the other hand, I probably personally fit into the other box of I've always wanted to look more athletic than I naturally do. Um, so, you know, there's kind of like two sides to it, whereas I feel like it's slightly more linear. Maybe that's not fair for men. Um, then you just know what you think. It's, yeah, I know what you mean. It's really interesting. This is um, actually a study I've read a long time ago, so I don't know whether this is still um, um, applicable, to be very honest, but um, uh, I, I wouldn't know why not. But um, apparently climbing among men is considered as one of the most attractive sports so oh really the wow male, yeah. the male body in climbing is um aligned with what we for ma- for males and for men consider as um beautiful from a cultural and social perspective mm-hmm. uh, i think this was like among top three sports or something i don't know what uh, probably the other one of, uh, ones were swimming and the last okay. one I forgot. So that's, I thought that was really interesting. Mm. I mean, because the basic kind of, I think one of the things behind body image, it's 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 certain extent being comfortable in your own skin, isn't it? And I think that's so important, um, but it's such an interesting and kind of wide reaching topic because if you're not feeling that comfortable in your own skin, that can have repercussions on your performance, on your confidence, on your social interactions. So it's quite a quite a big topic. Did you, and you sounded like you got quite a lot of interaction from your posts. What were the main kind of communications you had over it? Um, like I had athletes, like recreational athletes, or even pro athletes who were like, "Oh, this has been a topic that has been really bothering me." Yeah, just just like you explained it before, like with having friends that they feel really uncomfortable being really muscular or like somewhat as strive to be or you said you would strive to be like rather the athletic body type Mm. and I've had athletes sharing their stories um, on Instagram um, with me like in a private message or writing me like oh thanks for bringing this up because it's really a topic that should be talked about and I don't think it's just me um, getting and receiving all these messages Um, if you had have followed Beth Rodden recently she has been posting a lot about body image body positivity and how her focus had changed after having had um, a child 
And it's really interesting because also if you follow her, she has uh, received a lot of messages, a lot of interaction, and it seems like a lot of a lot of climbers are actually concerned by this topic, how to look um, and um, or like to get more specific. So differentiation between like sporting body image and the social body image. Mm. So how to look in a social context versus the body image in a sporting, the climbing context. And um, yeah, like Sasha D. Julian has been writing about it. Um, so it's been a topic all over the whole time. Like, Yeah, like absolutely. Yeah, it's been quite powerful. I've been following Beth's stuff as well. And I think she's, uh, I think it's really great that she's been kind of um, talking so openly and um, really kind of starting up a conversation there. And I think with body image, it's, it's, it's kind of easy to think that, oh, you know, we just shouldn't, we shouldn't worry about what we look like and that it's kind of, you know, a, a vanity thing. And, and I suppose to a certain extent that that's an element of it. But something I've come to realize is that it's so linked with a sense of identity. You know, like if you, if you feel a certain way in your body, you know, the, the mind and the body are kind of, you know, with, it's the same thing and you can feel like your identity can shift um as to whether you feel you know an inverted quote unquote like an athlete or um you feel quote unquote like an attractive person to your partner or, or whoever so it's, it's quite kind of um insidious and wide-reaching if you feel like there's a negative relationship there mm-hmm. I, I totally agree and at the end of the day um like this is again something how we look is something really out of our influence and not like it's not something we can really change and so instead of focusing what we look like it really helps if we focus on things for example like what can your body do so instead Mm -hmm. of like being dissatisfied with how we look and oh we don't really fit in because whenever we go out um um everyone looks at me because I have a big biceps or big shoulders and I feel really uncomfortable in the situation instead of focusing on this it can be really helpful to focus on okay what is your body actually able to do what functions of your body are you really proud of mm. and it's like okay I can do several pull-ups or I can climb, I don't know, like an 8B, or I can do whatever. And this can be on every level. Like it's, it's again, a shift of focus that can actually be really helpful. Yeah. So you shift more to kind of functionality and then draw your kind of confidence and sense of identity from that. So, okay, I might not look like I can do a pull up, but actually I can, I can climb really hard or I can do X, Y, or Z. And my body serves me really well um, in these other ways. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly. Mm. Um, okay and um so kind of segueing on from body image you've also talked a little bit about eating disorders and you recently posted a blog post article about anorexia athletica as opposed to anorexia nervosa which is the one we hear about more so it's a kind of a sports specific um type of eating disorder is that right um yes exactly so with the whole discussion going on about body image body um body positivity, and then also the risk of leanness-focused sports, as, for example, lead climbing is. I Mm -hmm. thought it was really interesting to also talk about eating disorders because um, leanness-focused sports are more prone 
for developing disordered eating. And I have to say that I'm not a clinic, clinical psychologist, so this is why I got an expert on this. I got a clinical psychologist who wrote an article from her perspective about this okay. issue because I found it, found it really important to talk about this from different perspectives. I also got a nutritionist, Amanda Watts, to write um, an article from her perspective as a nutritionist about disordered eatings, BMI, because I think this is a topic that doesn't only affect psychology, but like different various areas and it needs different experts to talk about this. Absolutely. Yeah, it's quite a complex um, a complex thing, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. But to answer your question before, so what anorexia athletica is, um, it's a subclinical eating disorder and it's the main goal is to be thin so you can increase your performance. Okay. And as uh, by reducing your weight and let, let's take, for example, lead climbing. We all know that the lighter we are, the better we might perform. We also know that this might be actually true for some time, for, but not actually in the long term, it actually doesn't work yeah sure in the long term we we would have to pay the costs yeah okay interesting and um and have you come across some of this in your work have you found that you've been working with people with um kind of subclinical eating disorders or that kind of tie in with with body image issues um i have to admit that so first of all because i'm not a clinical psychologist I, oh, of course, yeah. I Sorry. could not work in this field. So if I had an athlete um, coming to me where I say like, okay, this is actually a critical case, um, I would um, send them on to a professional. Yeah. So okay. um, I always say like in psychology, I sometimes feel like it's not so well widespread or not so commonly known, but it's as if you go to the doctor and not every doctor is specialized on everything so you go to the um I, I don't know the english word for it but to the internist for any stomach problems but um the same doctor the intern internist do you say that internist no no i don't think so but i kind of, i know what you're getting at like a, a specialist area of medicine like you have a specialist area in medicine um where um you don't go to the gynecologist for um throat problems for example. <laughs> sure they might be looking in the wrong place right and so I like comparing it like that so you like even in psychology uh, there are different fields and like some psychologists are for example a sports psychologist and a clinical psychologist so they can work with you on sports stuff but they can also work with you on clinical problems if actually this is an issue sure. but most are uh, like most psychologists actually specialize in different fields so you go go to see the sports psychologists um, talk about problems you have in sports or probably even life problems because this affects sports sure um, sure. um but you go and see like a specialist for for example as i've said like eating disorders yeah okay. i have to say I have never, no, okay, probably only once or twice, 
actually twice. Um, I've sent on an athlete, I've uh, transferred an athlete to a clinical psychologist or a psychotherapist because I thought it was not in my field of expertise anymore. And sure. these were two athletes with um, an eating disorder. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. And I mean, that's a really important uh, part of any profession is knowing where your limitations and where your professional boundaries and scope of practice lie. Um, and it's really important for the health of the people that you're working with that they're kind of, you know, sent to the right place and given the right expertise on on what they need. Oh, I totally believe so. Um, mm-hmm. Like, I think it would, um, yeah, I would be really untrustworthy if I would say that I could do something that I actually couldn't. And I think knowing your own boundaries, and I always call it like knowing your own circle of competence yeah. and knowing when to pass on to someone else is actually one of the most important things um, you have to know. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. I also remember you talking once a while ago about uh, vulnerability and shame. And now I know this is a huge topic, but you mentioned some of the work that Brittany Brown has done, and I'm a big fan of her, having listened to her both her TED Talks, or I think, has she even done three now? I'm not sure. Um, but And read, read a bunch of her stuff. And I think that's so applicable in the sporting realm, but not something that gets talked about a lot. I mean, this is a really general question, but how can we get better at it as a sport and a culture? Like, how can we get better at being vulnerable? <laughs> I mean, that's a massive question, but you know, like... I guess, I guess just being more open about stuff, but that's really easily said. So I actually find it, like, I find it really admirable, for example, when you talked about RED um, or IDS in that yeah, case. Yeah, sure, yeah. And um, because in that moment, I actually thought about how must you have felt in that moment of either like being asked to write about it or making the decisions. And I know this feeling that when we are maybe possibly ashamed of something, we, I guess now we all know this feeling of being ashamed of something and then like just opening up about something takes so much courage and I really admired you for talking so openly about it because oh, I thought it, no it totally needs people like this and I don't know whether I can answer your question um generically like how to increase um this courage and talking more openly about stuff but I do think that it needs role models like you or like Beth Rodden or like Hannah Schubert just talking about uh, things like that. Mm, being because, prepared to be vulnerable, I guess. And for me, certainly, it was a very conscious decision. I, I wasn't actually asked to write about it or anything and because you know no one really knew about it. And then I, I really thought about it and writing really helped me. But also I made a conscious I knew that I was going to feel vulnerable when I talked about it publicly and I kind of thought about it and I was like, this is going to be difficult from a vulnerability and potentially shame aspect, but Mm -hmm. I'm going to kind of feel the discomfort and do it anyway, just like lean into the discomfort of this. And so for me, it wasn't a case of doing something and then being like, oh my gosh, I feel vulnerable. And I wasn't expecting that. It was like, no, I'm going to step into a difficult space because for X, Y, Z reason, I feel this is important so yeah, I think 
for me, there's definitely like a, a planning aspect to it. Like vulnerability, I think, is a lot harder when it comes as like a shock. You know, you suddenly find yourself in a vulnerable space. But if you kind of decide consciously to step into it, it's often easier and, and more rewarding. And I think one thing that I've really learned from that experience, and I guess experiences like it over time, is that when you feel vulnerable, that's often because you expect criticism right you expect you feel shame you expect certain opinions you expect people to bring criticism or admonishment to whatever you're talking about or or saying but usually when you are make yourself vulnerable people bring compassion and that's what I've experienced this time around but also previously in other life experiences when you open yourself out and it's clear that you're doing that and you're showing a kind of uh, more vulnerability, except essentially, people usually respond with compassion. And that is then really helpful in future uh, kind of experiences to be able to step into that difficult space. Again, it gets, it becomes an easier space, if if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. I totally agree. And it's like, it's probably like, I like to imagine it like a little bit like an avalanche. If one starts being open and like embracing this vulnerability others might say like oh I have learned it's okay I have learned it's okay that others share their stories and from the experience that I've made watching others um I learned that it might help being more open next time myself and so I really love you I love your story and I think it does actually help a lot of people just just reflecting themselves more and like, okay, um, what do I learn from this experience for myself? Like, and as said, like courage is a little bit like contagious, even like if mm. someone around me is contagious, uh, oh, sorry, not contagious. <laughs> <laughs> then you stay away from them, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I meant like, uh, if someone around me is courageous, oh, courageous, thank you, <laughs> courageous. It actually maybe uh, makes me feel more courageous as well. And like, and that's what I meant with that's, uh, I can be really um, contagious. Yeah, no, that's right. <laughs> Abs- no, no, absolutely. And I, I know what you mean. I found that, you know, watching some of the stuff that Beth's put out actually has been, and I can see that she's had, you know, a lot of positive responses from people who have been really kind of, um, lifted up by by what mm-hmm. she's been saying and been able to feel more confident and I've certainly um, you know had a similar experience watching and reading what she's been posting and it's it helps you to shift your perspective and also like you say it's this kind of contagious feeling yeah absolutely and obviously if you open up um, about yourself that much you're always open also not only to the positive stuff but also to criticism but I really like that how Brittany Brown uh, said it. We should not attach this criticism to ourselves or to our self-esteem. So, because this is not every part of us. This is like one part of us, but we are more than just this one thing um, that we're vulnerable about. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, So, and at the end of the day, we always say like, oh, being open, being open to criticism and being open to compassion, we can learn a lot from it. And so I think this can also help us to develop 
not only in this one situation, but also develop as as a human. And yeah, like I also like the part where she talks about, or like where Brittany Brands talks about, like the biggest critics is most most of the time ourselves, or the person that is most critical of ourselves, like why we do something wrong or what's bad about this, and uh, it's not the others. So, and even like changing perspective, like if we are vulnerable, if we are open about this uh, subject, whatever it is then, um, how would we behave if we were our best friend? Like how would our best friend react in such a situation? And that's, I think, really well said, uh, what you said before. Yeah, most people and our friends, not even only our friends, they react with compassion. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the hardest thing to give to yourself. But sometimes, like you say, when you open up and you get it from other people, it's it kind of shows you shows you that different a different side. Just leading on from that, thinking about the role of a coach with an athlete, do you work sometimes in that kind of do you work sometimes with athletes and with their coaches and communication between because I think that coach athlete relationship can be really important. And I guess you probably see that a lot in the competition environment, maybe with outdoor climbers as well. That kind of that dynamic is that something you've you've kind of worked with? Yes. The funny thing is, most of the time I work separately. I work either with the coaches or with the athletes. But I guess at the end of the day, it's beneficial for both of them. But yeah, totally. And um, I think it's really often underestimated the role um, that you have as an as a coach. Because if you look, for example, at the athletic career model by, I think it was Willemann and Lavallee, it's like one of the most famous athletic development models. That's why. Um, okay. That's why I named it. But if you look at that, when athletes get to their teens, if they're in their youth career, it's who is most important. Um, even in individual sports, it's like the friends. and as a first adult reference person, it's the coach. It's not the parents anymore. Oh, really? So okay. It, I find this really interesting. And um, this also um, shows the importance of the role that uh, coaches have, particularly in that age group. So they have like this maybe responsibility for keeping the team together, for creating good team cohesion, but also for being a role model themselves. And having talked about body image before, like coaches have an important role to actually encourage a positive body image or they can have a positive role. It's interesting that you say that actually uh, connecting those two ideas about the coaching relationship and then body image. Um, it's become kind of topical recently with the, I don't know if you saw all the stuff that came out from Mary Kane, the track athlete from um, the US and her kind of really unhealthy um, influence of the coach on her and her body image um, and her health effectively because she was kind of slightly bullied and kind of pushed into losing weight for her sport so I think that's really kind of come into the limelight recently how important and how influential that that coaching relationship can be totally I think I haven't heard about this particular case to be honest but I totally I wouldn't I wouldn't underestimate the role as I've said before like a coach has 
various responsibilities. Like one more I want to add to what I've said before is because like, talking about youth athletes like, once again, um, mm-hmm. that time where they form their identities. So questions like who am I? Is it worth spending all the time in sports? Who am I if I don't do sports anymore? Mm-hmm. What status does it bring me? So questions like this arise, and it's absolutely natural to have these questions. And yeah. because they're in search for their identity, they need role models. And as I've said before, like it's in this case not really the parents anymore because they try to be more independent from parents, but the coach takes over a really important role. So that's the one thing I wanted to add to what I've been saying before. And now talking about the coach's impact on developing a positive body image. It's really interesting. I don't know whether you've read it, um, the biography of Angela Aita. No, I haven't because I don't think it's been translated into English. Oh, yes. It's in German, isn't it? Yeah. It's it's only in German. I would love to read it. It's actually really interesting because she talks about that her coach implemented that they had to weigh themselves before every training once a week. Wow. And it was actually meant with a like good background. So the coach actually only wanted, wanted to wanted the, the, his athletes to be healthy and to not be too thin. But at the same time, because everyone else, particularly climbing back then, was really thin they always learn that, oh, if I'm thin myself, then I will probably get better results. So it, they were constantly in this cognitive dissonance of like, what what do I do? And shall I be really light? But then I get comments from a coach that I maybe too might be too light. But if mm. I'm too heavy, I might also get like stupid comments. Like Yeah, it and, just puts this huge overemphasis on weight as a kind of... As, as one of so many factors that affects performance, you know, obviously being, you know, really yeah. overweight would make climbing harder for sure. But like within a massive range, weight is not very likely, unlikely to be the limiting factor for most climbers. But I think something like that weighing at every training session or once a week or so is um, it just it shifts this focus, doesn't it? It, it totally does. And it's really interesting because I had made a little survey on Instagram. So I asked athletes what they would actually find helpful, what coaches should do to foster a positive body image. And then also ask them, okay, what would you think would be rather unhelpful? And um, it goes in line, actually, the, the results I got was really interesting because it went aligned with research results made in this particular field okay so it was really interesting because it was like for example uh instead of as you said just before like it's really unhelpful to just every week be reminded about your weight so instead of like focusing on the weight only there are so many other factors that influence your performance like uh it's more helpful if the coach encourages good health like healthy eating and um, fitness and being really strong or even like psychological factors and these factors it's way more healthy and way more uh, encouraging to be focusing on these factors as only reducing to the weight 
Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I wish I could read her her book. <laughs> I wish it was in English. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Her. Maybe she's going to translate it one day. Oh, that would be great. Um, that would be great. Uh, one other thing I wanted to ask you about was, um, I think in one of your blog posts, or maybe it was an Instagram post, you talked about emotional regulation. And that really kind of struck a chord with me because you see it a lot outdoors at Crags, you know, people falling off their route or failing on their project. And, you know, as we know, like climbing is like 99% failure and that kind of uncertainty and potential failure is like embedded in any kind of athletic endeavor, right? So people are constantly coming up against this kind of form of emotional adversity where they're not experiencing the result they want, right? We all get that in climbing and we obviously get that in life. And you see a lot of people either getting angry or getting sad. You know, I've seen tears at the crag a lot, or I've seen, you know, little rages. And you spoke a little bit, and I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about how we can help people to manage like that emotional regulation so that they're having essentially a better experience. It's really interesting that you mentioned this because I've also observed, and I think we probably all have experienced this ourselves being at a at a problem at a root or a boulder problem and um like if we don't do it for example we get really upset and we cry or we <laughs> potentially even scream we might have heard people screaming at the crag or getting um really aggressive or emotional or if we are afraid um so if we experience fear um on the wall that we behave potentially aggressively towards our belayer as a consequence of being afraid. So I totally think this is like an issue or that sounds really negative, but it totally occurs in climbing. And um, for this, it might be uh, interesting to understand how emotions are built up because there are three different phases. Um, and so first of all, there is this preparation phase. I don't actually know whether this, I call it like this. I don't know whether this is the correct English translation. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but in this preparation phase, like the emotion is built up. And the interesting thing is in during this phase, we can still influence um, our emotions by applying different coping strategies mm -hmm. uh, so if we are um, climbing a route and the quick draws are really far apart and we're above the click draw and there's a half quick draw and we're above we're above it and there's a really hard move and we feel like oh now and now it's getting interesting so and we might feel afraid of this situation mm -hmm. and when this feeling starts or appears for the first time and it's built up, we can use, for example, breathing techniques or um, cognitive mental strategies to counteract this emotion. Okay. Um, because not every emotion is always helpful. Sure. Like fear isn't like, maybe frustration sometimes, maybe we need to be frustrated for some time, but it's most of the time not helpful either. And by using these techniques and strategies, we can decrease this feeling, or in this particular case, this feeling of fear. 
Okay, so it's catching it almost before it gets out of control. And I suppose you could apply that to anger or sadness as well. You know, like if you're starting to feel a bit frustrated, then maybe you you kind of, it's noticing it early before it turns into like a full-blown rage. Totally agree. That's actually what you, like, that's actually the next phase because this main phase is when we're fully raged or when we're really afraid. So it's when the emotion fully captures us and it's it's really hard in this moment to escape so when once we are really really sad and we cry it's really hard in this moment to escape this feeling so what actually is just helpful in this moment okay emotions just come and go and it's just like okay wait until it's leaving again Mm -hmm. and um well and at the end of the day like no emotion stays forever so this is like in the third phase when the emotion calms down again or when we calm down again so if we want to interact there it's really helpful if we use our strategies tools things we have found helpful in the past in this preparation phrase at the beginning and it's also about being able to notice it at the beginning. One of the things I've learned actually from actually from Vipassana meditation, which is a type of meditation, that emotions, I always used to think of them as this very cognitive, you know, thinking thing, like a brain mind thing. But actually really emotions are something that you first, if you pick up on it early, you feel in the body. And if you can feel that sensation in the body and notice that early, usually that's the point at which you can um at least with practice learn not to react too strongly in either direction and that's something i've certainly found found really interesting oh you're totally right about this i think and this comes again like being more mindful li- listening to a body more carefully knowing ourselves is essential to being able to control our emotions better mm. and yeah what i've also like what i might want to point out is not every emotion is like positive or negative for every person so some of us find i don't know for example being really aggressive really really helpful to be climbing really hard outside sure okay yeah someone else finds this emotion really unhelpful and really hindering their performance so i think at the start you also have to ask yourself like what am I, emotions do I even know and which emotions do I have in which situations and which of them are helpful and fostering my performance and which are rather um, hindering myself in performing really well. So I would also not generalize this is good or this is bad. Mm. Um, so even fear, as a, one example, being afraid is actually not a bad thing because at the end of the day this is like a survival mechanism and in sure. a lot of some situations just tell tells us to stop and to just not put ourselves in a really risky situation if we talk about um, fear or fear of falling in lead climbing though we also have to acknowledge that maybe this fear is sometimes unjustified so yeah. it's really about finding out what emotion is justified, helpful, or not helpful in what situations? Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of um, 
I'm starting to realize that you're a detective, basically, aren't you? As a sports psychologist, <laughs> you have to like put your detective hat on and really work out what is going on for that individual in that context. And it's just going to be so different for everyone. I totally agree. Oh my God. I love, I love this metaphor. <laughs> it actually really applies. Like, and it totally explains, I guess, my work, what I do. Like, I'm not telling someone to do, to do this or that, or that's the solution because I'm not the expert for, for the other person. It's guiding someone to find what works for them, right? It, exactly. Exactly. And that's, I guess, my job then. Yeah. So <laughs> Cool. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's good. So maybe that's a good place to leave it then. I think we've covered loads of really interesting stuff. If people want to find you, where can they find you? Uh, They can find me um, on Instagram, on climb psychology, um, or on my homepage. They can read some of my blog posts if they're interested. I guess they can go into more depths of some of the topics we've been talking about. Perfect. Yeah. So it's at Climbing Psychology is your Instagram tag. And is it climbingpsychology.com, your website? Yes, exactly. Perfect. And before we finish, one question that I think I want to start asking everyone is what's the best book that you've read recently? So not necessarily best book of all time, but what's a recent book that you've read that you liked? Oh, um, I would actually say it's Brenny Brown's um, Daring greatly. Okay. I've not come across it earlier, and I was really happy having read this book. Okay. It was really eye opener on many levels. Okay, cool. Daring greatly by Brene Brown. Awesome. Good one. Nice. Oh well, thanks very much. Thank you very much for having me, Mina. It was great fun.